The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Um, it's a real privilege to, to be here this morning um, and to get to preach this passage. Uh, greetings from Coomera Baptist from the Gold Coast. Although I haven't been there for a little bit, I've been on holidays in Caloundra. And I'm on my way home and stopped in this morning. So it's been a blessing because I got to be at LCC Caloundra last week. And here we are this week um, getting the full Life Centre Fellowship fill. So I'm really thankful. Um, let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into that passage. Well, dear Heavenly Father, now we come before your word. We have heard it read. And now... I pray that by your spirit you would equip me to preach it. There is wonderful riches of truth in this passage that we need. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Without your word we die. And so make it live to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're kicking off a new series in the book of Malachi, and so that's my privilege to get to kind of launch that off for you. Um, We have—I love this book. I love the book of Malachi. I've been part of preaching through it a couple of times, so I'm a little bit jealous that you're going to get to spend the next however long um, you're going to take in it, because it is rich, it is deep, and it is timely. Although it's an ancient book, it is extremely timely. I want to ask a question that I think begins to get to the message of the book and what it means for us. And the question I want to ask is this. What level of devotion or what level of zeal ought to normally characterize the life of a Christian towards God? What what ought that to look like normally, knowing those ebbs and flows in the Christian life, but what ought it to look like? When you see a Christian, you'd be like, That ought to normally be there. That kind of zeal for God. What does that look like? What level is it? Because I think we can agree there are kind of levels. Like if you've been in church for a little while and you've kind of seen or experienced or seen levels and you're like, okay, is that normal? Is that what it, it is meant to look like? Because like, so you meet some people and you're like, you are obviously a Christian. Like it was like, that's super obvious. You've got it written on your T-shirt, you know, and you have a fish sticker on your car and you only listen to worship music and it's like, yeah, this is pretty... But, but, but even more like, more obviously, it's like, oh, they, they like love God's word. Like you mean something, they love God's word. They love, they love to pray. They love to um, consume Bible studies. They, they, they are invested in God's people and they look to disciple others. They give towards the church. Like they seem to be just like faithful members of a local church, like they're obviously a Christian. There are others and it's like, okay, like like attendance at church is probably more like 50-50. They don't really seem to like be sold out, like heart engaged with the Lord, but they do like, they're Christian, right? They're like in and around the stuff. But it just, if you're just looking, it seems more likely that, that, that work and, Sport and family really does have their heart more than the things of God. There are others who claim to be Christian, but you really there isn't much there at all. 
And I'm thinking of like a conversation I think I found myself in countless times where I'll be talking to somebody and they'll be speaking about somebody and I'll just ask, innocently just ask, oh, are they Christians? And they'll be like, well, I don't know, like maybe, like I think so. At least I think they would still claim to be Christian. I mean, they don't go to church anymore. They potentially, maybe they moved in with their boyfriend or moved in with their girlfriend. They don't, they don't really talk about the Lord at all anymore. They don't believe some of the things that they used to believe about God and about ethics and morality and, and things like that. But I mean, I, don't, I just don't really know. In the 2021 census, it said 61% of Australians said they were Christians. To, to which all the Christians were like, that's not right. right? It's, it's, in, in our experience, 61, six out of every 10 people that you meet are Christians. Right? What that means is that actually the vast majority of people in Australia who claim to be Christians, that that, that, that title, Christian, which includes the name Christ, that name falls and, and, and weighs on their life so minimally, so lightly, so casually. It is just not a very serious thing to be a Christian. And I think that that attitude can creep into the church. So is there a gap between the kind of devotion that we ought to expect would characterize the Christian life, the kind of love for God that we would expect to see, is there a gap between that and actually what God expects would characterize the Christian life? Well, one of the places that God lays out what he expects is the book of Malachi. So I'm just going to briefly set the scene for the book. Um, we need some context to kind of land it. And, and, and to do that, I want to look both forwards from Malachi and backwards. First, briefly, forwards from Malachi. After Malachi, you get 400 years of essentially silence between the Old and New Testament, and then we have John the Baptist. He's the next prophet after Malachi, who will come and prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. So, so Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He's actually, and it's the last prophet that's written in the Old Testament. He actually is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And by the end of Malachi, I think if you've, if you've read it properly and if you've heard it and it's sunk into your heart, you will probably find yourself at the end of the Old Testament thinking, oh, please send a savior. Send a Messiah. But let's look backwards as well. We can go all the way back to, I'm tempted to go back to the very beginning, but let's go back just far enough to get a sense of where we are in the story of Israel. Israel, remember, they were saved from slavery in Egypt. They were led out in, into the promised land, but on the way they stopped by a Mount, Mount Sinai where God and his people came into covenant together. That they agreed that this is how we will live in the land that you are giving to us. Now there were gracious elements to that covenant that, that was made between God and his people, but there was on a national level a principle of works, which said this, and you can read about this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where there were both blessings and curses. So if you do well in the land, Israel, if you do well, well then things are going to go well for you. You will prosper. You're, you're, you will harvest well. You will be, uh, you'll be safe from the, from the people around you. Like things are going to go, go really, really well for you. But if you are unfaithful, if you forget the Lord, if you go after the worthless idols, well, then the covenant curses will come. 
you will be invaded, you will know poverty, and eventually you may even be removed from the land from which I have given you. And because of their constant covenant unfaithfulness, God does remove them from the land. He raises up the king of Babylon to come and he comes and he destroys the southern kingdom. He destroys Jerusalem. No stone left unturned, no walls left, no homes left. There is no temple anymore. And the people are rounded up in a, in a few ways, are marched off to live in Babylon. That's what's happened to the people of God. They've gone to Babylon. Now, they, now God is gracious. He does not leave them in Babylon, but actually, it, after 90 years, puts it into the heart of the king of Persia by then to actually let his people return home. But you just, just, so just picture it. You're coming home after being in exile for so long. You come home. You're finally getting to come home. But what do you see? Well, there's nothing much to see, is there? The temple's gone. There's no walls, there's no homes, there's not much of anything. Eventually they rebuild their own homes, but they leave God's home, the temple, unbuilt. And so God sends along prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they're actually the two books that are just before Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, and they're encouraging the people of Israel, no, finish the temple. So they finish it, but if you read about when they finished it and, and then they kind of like stood back and looked at it, do you, do you know what, how they responded? They cried. Because it is not like the old one. It does not have the glory of the old temple. Now from that moment, that temple being made and the disappointment of that, add 60 years and you get the book of Malachi. So try to picture it. They've returned home and they've returned home full of kind of messianic hope. There were these prophecies that would have, would have made them buoyant with hope. Right, all the glory that will return to Israel one day. We will go home and the glory will return. But here they are, now about 100 years on from getting back home, and they're looking around and they're not seeing much glory. The temple is a shadow of its former self. Jerusalem still lies in ruins. The leaders that led them home like Zerubbabel have now died. They are small in number and insignificant on the world stage. One commentator I read described the nation like this. He said, They had been reduced to a defenseless, financially depressed fringe province within the vast Persian Empire. Now, what impact does that have on their devotion, their worship of God? Well, what they became was incredibly half-hearted towards the Lord. They lost their zeal. And Malachi will show a bunch of things. They will show that they became lethargic in their worship, apathetic about God's word. The priests just stopped caring. The people stopped giving. They became unfaithful in their marriages. Issues of justice were ignored and much, much more. What they engaged in is what I would call, like to call empty religion. So it is religion. Don't get it wrong. There is religion going on in Israel. They have not become pagan. They're not worshipping idols. There is religion going on. They are doing the things. They're doing the religious things. But it's empty. It's just meaningless. It's pure formalism. There's no heart involved in it. There's no zeal for love. There's no actual adoration of God. It's just the doing the externals, doing the thing, and it shows. Right? Their half-heartedness about the Lord shows in their half-heartedness in worship because they stop giving. 
Right? When it comes time to offer the sacrifices, you'll see this. They're just like, oh man, which animal can we spare? You know, it's like, oh, get old Daisy. That three-legged Daisy with the blind one. Just, just give that to the Lord. We can't, it's useless to us anyway. And at the same time, they're doing all of this. And this is the real kind of kicker. They think God's okay with this. They think God's impressed. They think everything is okay between them and the Lord. And so that, this massive gap between their understanding of themselves and God's perspective of them, it's, it becomes kind of like the structure of this book. There's this like conversation where God will say something and they'll be like, huh? Really? Is that true? So the structure of the book goes back and forward like that. Let me, let me give you some examples. Our passage this morning, God will say this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, chapter 1, verse 7, God says, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Chapter 2, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 8, God says, Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? 3, verse 13, God says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? It's just like every single time. It's like, this is true. How is that true? It's a terrifying thought, I think. That our self-evaluation of how we are with God and his evaluation of how we're going might be extremely different. And that corporately, we could be all off. We could have it all wrong corporately. Because remember, Malachi is not written to an an individual. It's written to a community. And I think that's even more dangerous, isn't it? Because you find yourself in a community, and we can kind of convince ourselves at times that we're like, well, this is normal, because it's normal for us. And so it just kind of becomes the standard, and you like look around and you go, okay, we can justify ourselves. I'm like a little bit more holy than so-and-so, and a little doing a bit better than, better than them. And so this just seems to be the normal way that Christians operate. I think we do this all the time. Like I was driving here this morning, right? I was on the, on the highway, and there are roadworks parts. You know, I noticed that. And, and, and they, they drop the, the thing, you know, the speed limit down to like 60, right? And you're on the highway, and you think... Are we meant to obey that? Right? And so the way I figure that out is I look around and I go, okay, so what it seems like is the way we obey 60 is by going 80. Right? So it's like, it's kind of like not on 100, but it's like, it's not 60. It's like 80. And I look around and I see, yeah, we all agree. Okay, we all agree. We're going to go 80. Now that's our opinion. Like we're all okay with that, right? There's literally no one going 60. But the police could come along and go, Oh no, we, have, we get to evaluate that as well. And you can see that God can come along and say, oh, I'm going to evaluate your devotion to me. And he gives their, his assessment and every time they're shocked. Every time they're like, what? It makes me think of uh, Matthew 7, hey, when Jesus says that there, there are going to be on that day of judgment, like many who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not, you know? prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and he will say to them depart from me i never knew you and they're shocked they were confident 
We thought you were pleased. The big idea, I think, is that partial obedience is actually disobedience. You know this. Um, you know, if you're a parent, you, you know this kind of thing, um, particularly. You know, if you, if, if you say to your child, okay, go and tidy your room, right? Now, if they come back and say, I have made the bed and I put a toy away, you'll be like, well, that's not what I said. I said, tidy your room. And you're like, no, I, I did. I, I did tidying in my room. No, no, no. You see, partial obedience is actually disobedience. I said, tidy your room. See, if you're going to obey, you would have to do the whole room, right? When God calls us to wholehearted devotion, less than that is disobedience. Should we fear for modern Christianity? I think maybe. So let's get into the passage. Verse 1 introduces the book. We only have five verses, I think. Verse 1 introduces the book. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Okay, so a few things to notice already. First, the message is, notice, of the Lord by Malachi. The Lord is literally Yahweh. So God is reminding them of the covenant name that he gave them back in Exodus chapter 3. He's reminding them of how he saved them from slavery in Egypt, how he made covenant with them when they entered into the promised land. So this book from the start is fundamentally God speaking. God is speaking. It's actually amazing. 47 out of the 55 verses that are in Malachi are direct quotes from God. 47 out of 55. The name Malachi literally means my messenger. So that's what Malachi is. He is simply a messenger from God. So the emphasis from the start is God is speaking. Do you, do I have your attention? You know, I went to, you know, I've been done a few different preaching courses and people, you know, they, they tell you how you've got to start your sermons and, and they generally say you've got to have an attention grabbing start, you know, so maybe tell a story about your latest trip to the dentist or whatever it is and, and kind of get a laugh and then see, because you've got to kind of got everybody's attention. Well, how about this? God is speaking. Are you listening? We have this, um, I don't know if it's tradition, at Coomera Baptist, where we will, um, at, the, at the end of the Bible reading, uh, the person will always say, this is the word of the Lord. There's your attention-grabbing introduction every single week. God is speaking. I remember my parents, you know, sometimes, if, if the news was on as a kid, and um, they wanted to hear what this person was saying, they'd be like, shh, so-and-so speaking. Shh, they're speaking. I would say the same. Shh. God is speaking. The weight of who is, is, is in the room and is the one who is speaking is what grabs our attention week in, week out. It's a reminder each week of the unoriginality of the sermon. You have not come here to hear me. You don't really care, I assume, my ideas of anything. You don't know me. If you did, you probably wouldn't want to know. No, but you want to hear God. In his word. And so Malachi begins like that. The second thing to notice from verse 1 is that, notice it says, it is an oracle of the word of the Lord. So commentators note that the word oracle actually means burden. It's like a sense of duty. I think that helps get the tone of the book right from the start. Malachi is saying, I have a word from God for you, Israel, and it is a burden for me. 
It is a burden. I come with duty. This is a hard word. I have a lot of correcting to do. It is a burden. I love this point. The sense of burden to share the word of God that has been given to them. Have you ever had that? It was common in the prophets to speak like that. Amos put it like this, like a question, Amos 3 verse 8. It says, the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? I love Jeremiah says in 20 verse 9, Jeremiah 20 verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. I have a burden. God has given me a message. Think of Paul in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. I have this word. I have this burden. It's, it is uh, like the, a privilege of preaching because you sit in a passage all week and you're kind of like, you, you're stirring up and, and the, the, the Holy Spirit's working inside you. By the time it gets to serve Sunday, it is like a burden. You walk up and you just go, here's my burden. I can sit down now, you know, because I've offloaded the burden because God has a message for his people. This is the tone of preaching. It's different, isn't it? There's nothing like it. I enjoy a chat about the footy, but it is not a burden. <laughs> There's nothing to offload there. You can talk about the latest stuff with politics and the royals or whatever it is. That's not this, you know. God speaking. Malachi has an oracle from the Lord. He is zealous to speak it. I think that's already a rebuke to them. There they are, Israel, in their kind of lazy religion, empty religion, half-hearted religion, just idling through the motions. And here comes Malachi like a steam engine saying, I've got a burden from the Lord to share with you. So what does God say to them? Verse 2 begins, I have loved you, says the Lord. amazing isn't it i have loved you god's first words to them i have loved you the sense of it's not past it's present i love you just wonder what that already would do to a people who are feeling half-hearted towards the lord hey who have become so disenfranchised so disobedient god says first words to them i have loved you Maybe you found yourself saying something similar to this, you know, or thinking something similar to someone who's wronged you. Maybe it was a friend or, or, or someone in your family or a child, and they've just like, they've done you wrong. And they, they, it's, it's obvious they've done you wrong. And you, often, we often don't have the presence of mind to say why you're hurt, we hurt so much. We just go in on their sin or whatever it is. But really, deep inside... The reason it hurts is because we'd say, I've loved you. Why would you do that? I have loved you. And God starts here, I think, because it's their fundamental issue. They have a suspicion that this isn't true. They're looking around at their situation in Israel. They're looking at the temple. They're looking at their their life. They're looking at their lack of glory. They're so insignificant. And they're like, they're doubting whether God 
is wholehearted towards them. And they think, well, if he's not wholehearted towards us, why would earth would we be wholehearted towards him? And so God comes to them and the first thing he says to them is, I have loved you. He sets the context of their sin in the context of his covenant relationship with them. The context of their rebellion is his loyalty to them. The context of their greed is his generosity. The context of their compromise is his steadfastness. The context of their adultery is his faithfulness. The context of their half-heartedness is his wholehearted devotion to his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. First words. But then verse 2 continues. But you say, how have you loved us? So they're like looking around going, we do, we do not see it. I imagine like a child, maybe in a particularly rebellious season, asking their parent something like that, hey, like, how have you loved me? And a parent would just be like, well, <laughs> where do you want to start? I've loved you since the, the, the day that I'm, I heard about you. You weren't even born yet. I loved you. I was praying for you, caring for you. Brought you home from the hospital. I've made you a room with love. Carried you. Settled you at night. Cleaned you up. You were nasty. It was nasty. It was disgusting. I kept cleaning you up day after day after day. How have I loved you? Like provided for you. Put clothes on you. Given you shelter. Protected you. Made you all these meals. How have I loved you? And they say to Yahweh, how have you loved us? You think, are you being serious like that? Like if we can think, are you serious child to a parent? Are you serious Israel to Yahweh? And God could answer in so many ways, couldn't he? How have I loved you? Oh, okay. Well, does anyone remember Egypt? Anyone? Right? Because I said plagues, right? And like you got out of Egypt. Anyone remember the Red Sea? Like that was, it was there, but then it wasn't, you know, and you walked through and then it closed on your enemies. Anyone remember the wilderness that I provided for you? Anyone remember, remember how I gave you my law and we made a special covenant with you that I didn't make with anybody else? Anyone remember? You went into the promised land. Do you remember how you got the first city in the promised land? You did nothing. Like you walked around and around and around and you yelled out and Jericho's walls came tumbling down. Does anyone remember that? Does anyone remember how you were so unfaithful, but every time you called out for deliverance, I sent along a judge who delivered you, and I gave you peace in the land, but then you kept rebelling, and I kept sending another savior and another savior. Does anyone have any recollection of how I have loved you? I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet calling you back to follow me in grace and in mercy. Right now you are home from exile because I put it into the heart of a foreign king to let you come home. How have I loved you? But God doesn't mention any of that. He goes deeper. He actually goes underneath all of those things to why he does all of those things at all. The fundamental reason all of those things happened. He did not do any of those things for other nations. How have you loved us? Verse 2, God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So notice, he doesn't just say, Jacob, I have loved. That would just be to restate, I have loved you. He puts it next to Esau to make the point. 
So God takes them all the way back. We're in the last book of the Old Testament. God takes them all the way back to the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, where there were two nations that came from two brothers. Jacob would become Israel. Esau would become Edom. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, God asks. What's the answer? Yes, they were brothers. More than that, they were twin brothers. Yet... Although they were brothers, although they were twin brothers, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. How have you you loved us? I chose you. I didn't do that for Edom. If you know the story, that's a kind of, it's actually a surprising choice. You know, you look at Esau and he's, I mean, he's older and he's got the birthright and he's kind of, he's a man's man, you know, he's like out there hunting and, um, he's providing and he's super hairy, uh, if you know the story. And that's, um, that's, that's a good thing. You would, you would, you would pick it. Like you would, like Jacob, he's not like that, right? One stage, he calls himself a smooth man. You know, he's not talking about his like, his game with the ladies. He's like, he's like, no, my, my skin's like smooth. I have like, I'm hairless. Like, <laughs> shame. He was a bit of a mama's boy. He didn't like to do the hard work. Esau, you know, you would be like, come on, let's go hunting. He'd be like, this washing will not fold itself. You know, he's like, I'm, I'm staying home and I'm doing this. I'm cleaning up around here. You know, he was a deceptive person. And so if it's a schoolyard pick and you got them lined up, who do you take? You're taking, you're taking Esau. But God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Why? Why Jacob, not Esau? And then God knows you'd be asking that. You'd be like, why? And I think that's why he put in there, weren't they brothers? Meaning, if you look for the answer for why in them, you won't find it. It's not about them. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 9. He says about them, he says, though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau, And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So if you look for the cause for God's love for Jacob within Jacob, you won't find it. Because it's in God. He chose to love Jacob. He chose Israel. Moses talks about God's choice of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. He says this, talking to Israel, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. He chose you. Why? Because he loves you. It's in him. Same with Jacob. He chose Jacob. Why? Because he chose to set his love on Jacob. It's the same word for love in both passages. Now, I understand that can be a hard saying, but just think about how everything gets ruined if God gives an answer for why, and it's in Israel or it's in Jacob. Why did you love us? Well, because you were such a great nation. Okay, what about now? They're insignificant. They're small in number. No, why did you love them? Oh, because they were actually a very moral people. Okay, what about now? They're incredibly immoral. You see, if God ever gives an answer for the the reason for his love in that person, 
I mean, it's always going to... I mean, if he says, you know why I love you? I love you because of this. You know what we'll do the next day? We'll ruin that exact thing. And we'll never be confident. We'll never be assured of his love. Oh, but if the love of God is grounded in his free, gracious choice to love, well, then how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved anything from God. I mean, you read their stories. Neither of them deserved a thing. Right? Esau sells his birthright for a meal. The nation of Edom, which comes from Esau, is like a paradigm. It's like the paradigm country for, the, the, for people who hate God's people, but the enemies of God's people. They actually help Babylon destroy God's people. They help fund them. And Jacob, you look at him, and he's like, he's a deceitful liar. So what's the amazing part? The amazing part is not that he loved Jacob. It's amazing, it's amazing that he loved either of them. Amazing grace. Now, I know that that teaching can be unsettling, but notice carefully its purpose in Malachi. God is saying this to people in this moment. Why? It is obviously not for some kind of late night, small group, philosophical kind of academic discussion about the pros and cons of election and predestination and all these kinds of things. What's he saying it to for? He's saying it to, this is amazing to me. He's saying it to, there's a group of people who are basically nominal, like just name-only followers of God. They are half-hearted, they are lazy, they are idle in their worship, they're basically not doing much at all. And God says to them, I chose you. I I have loved you. How? I chose you. To light a fire in them, to, to, to rekindle a passion and a zeal for God in their worship. So for the next two verses... God lays out what Esau I have hated means, what it looked like. Israel should be thinking at this time, but for the grace of God, there go we, right? So verse 3, talking about what Esau I've hated looked like. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Edom's home was hill country and it will be laid to waste. Their heritage Well, it won't go to their descendants. It will go to jackals who will eat it. Prophets in Israel had long prophesied that the day of judgment would finally come for Edom. They were so wicked. Joel 3 verse 19 says, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Jeremiah 49 verse 17 says, Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. Obadiah says to Edom, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Well, it's finally happened. There are still some who might plan to rebuild Edom, right? This doesn't look good for Edom right now. We might rebuild it though. Verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Meaning Edom's judgment will be permanent. And even though Jacob is Esau's brother, this is not what happened to Israel. 
even though they were brothers. So you see like the kind of contrast that Israel is meant to hear in all of this. What is happening to Edom has not happened to us. He has loved us. Right? Israel was made desolate as well, right? When they were removed, just like Edom. But God remembered his promises to them and he restored them to their land. Israel also said, we will rebuild. And God did not tear it down, but he sent prophets to encourage them to keep building. God is angry with Edom, it says, forever. What does he say to Israel? I have loved you. I have loved you. Now, verse 5 gives the reason for all of this. It says, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So when you see verses 3 to 4 happen to Edom, you will recognize great is the Lord. Where? Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Like he's, he's great beyond Israel. He's not like just a localized God, kind of tribal God. He's just God over Israel. No, he is great everywhere. And most importantly, they'll know he has loved us. He has not given us what we deserve. So that's the passage. A few thoughts to wrap up. I wonder what you would say to someone or even yourself uh, when you feel a sense that your zeal for the Lord is waning. Someone, you maybe, like hardly get to church anymore, holding on to your money, don't really give, hardly seem to care for the things of God, the people of God, not much prayer is happening. What is the remedy for this? You might go, well, it's the law. I should tell you what you ought to be doing. This is what the, this is what the Christians ought to be doing. The Bible tells us what we ought to be doing. You, sh- you ought to be doing that. Well, yeah, there's a place for that. That's not where God starts, is it? He says, before he says, here's what you should be doing. And he says, I have loved you. Right? Because the, the thing underneath the thing, it's like you're behaving like this, but it's not because you just, you're, you're like, it's straight disobedience. It, your disobedience is flowing from, you don't understand what God is like. You think God is unloving to you. That's why you're doing this. It's the same thing with Eve in the garden, isn't it? What, what is the serpent trying to get Eve to kind of think? Right? It's not just, did God really say? Like it's, it is questioning like the word of God, but more than that, it's questioning the goodness of God. He's the kind of God that keeps from you. He's the kind of God that doesn't let you have everything that you want to have. And so what is, what's, the, what's the serpent trying to get Eve to not believe? I have loved you from God. That's the underlying problem. And God would say to us this morning, his, his new covenant people, and God wants to say through this passage this morning to each one of you, I have loved you. I don't know how that lands on you right now, whether your um, practical circumstances have made you question that, whether that's true. Maybe you feels like, actually feels like God's been pretty half-hearted towards me lately. Remember Paul, what Paul wrote in Romans 8? He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And, and, and Paul's point is not, no, they won't separate you because they never happen. It's like, no, they happen. They just do not separate us from the love of God. So if we look around at our circumstances... And, and, and brothers and sisters, they can be genuinely hard to be not married and want to be, 
to be constantly, physically or mentally unwell, or both, struggling to have children, struggling with the children you have, financial strife, people treating you awfully, feeling like life has not panned out the way you wanted it to, maybe you're struggling with sin and wondering whether God is keeping joy from you, God says to you, I have loved you. Now you might say, how? How have you loved me? We could answer that in so many ways. Look at look around. This isn't this love? You know, here you are. Australia's pretty good to live in. Queensland's even better. North Lakes, it's not bad. <laughs> I mean, you can look around and go, this, this is pretty good. Hasn't he loved us? Spiritually, God could answer with, I've given you my word. I've given you gifts. I give you my church to belong to. I listen to all of your prayers. I hear all of your worship. I do a trillion things every day to show you love. Things you don't even notice. You don't even realize. But more than all of that, God wants to say this morning through this passage, I chose you. Before the foundations of the world, I loved you. In love, I predestined you for adoption as my children. I sent my son, the Lord Jesus, to die for you. I've called you by name. I'll never let you go. I will finish the work I've begun in you. I've done everything necessary that we would be together forever. And when you know you've been chosen, when God has loved you like that, the cross becomes so personal, I think. You know, the, the, the cross is not just God set up a, a kind of impersonal system by which you might be saved. No, the cross is, I'm saving you. I'm dying for you. You are on his mind. Edom and its disastrous fate is a good reminder of what our sins deserved. See, they are punished forever. They will not rebuild. What does that remind us of? Reminds us of hell, doesn't it? And how hell is described. It's forever. There is no rebuilding. Always, permanently, under the wrath of God. And though that's what we deserved, we got love. And Israel had it all wrong. So they figured, if he doesn't show love for us, we will not show love for him. If he's half-hearted towards us, we're just going to be half-hearted towards him. And God comes and says, what if you've got it all wrong? What if, in fact, I have loved you? And if that is true, how ought we to love God? What ought to be normal? What ought we to expect in the Christian heart? Should we not love him with all of our hearts, souls, mind and strength? Brothers and sisters, if you get the victory of the cross wrong, you will always be questioning the love of God. So if you think the victory of the cross is actually financial prosperity, whenever you're poor, you'll be like, I don't think he loves me. If you think the victory of the cross is just physical health, every time you get sick, every time you cough, you're like, I don't know if he loves me anymore. But if the victory of the cross is more than just a comfy life, it's more than good health, it's more than good wealth, but it's something bigger, richer and unshakable, like the forgiveness of your sins, like reconciliation with God, you don't need to question that. 
1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's love him. Let's love him who first loved us. If you ever doubt whether God is wholehearted towards you, look at the cross. He sent his only son to die in our place so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins and be brought into his family. He is wholehearted towards us. Let me pray. Father, thank you. What a gracious word to be reminded this morning of your love. Love that is stretched back into eternity and will stretch forward into all of eternity. I pray that we would respond to that rightly. We thank you. You forgive us for when we fail. Encourage us, we pray, and I pray in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.